we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we have two guests, and we're going to be talking about an important issue that doesn't really get addressed enough, and that is the executive branch's basically takeover or creation of its own immigration policy, essentially outside the law. And there's two parts to that, and we have two guests to talk about it, both with the center. First is George Fishman, senior legal fellow at the center, longtime veteran of Capitol Hill and also Homeland Security attorney under the Trump administration. And we just published a paper by him tracing what is called parole. And he'll tell more about it. It's not criminal parole in the immigration context. Basically, it means the executive being able to let somebody go into the United States who doesn't have any other right to be here. And it is one part of what presidents over the years, not just President Biden, have used as an end run around the rules that Congress has passed about who gets to move to the United States and who doesn't. And our second guest is Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies here at the Center, and she's going to be talking about work permits. Again, the executive branch for years has just given work permits to people who don't have any right to work here and has used that essentially with parole, not in every instance, but when you put parole and work permits together, you essentially have a package that enables a president to just let in anybody he wants from overseas, whether Congress authorizes it or not, and because they would be able to work, enables them to, you know, to stay and live here. And this is something that really doesn't get focused on enough when we're talking about the immediate issues of the border, for instance, which is a real problem. But the broader problem is who decides? Does Congress get to set U.S. immigration policy or not? And what presidents over the years have answered through their actions is no, that they get to do whatever the heck they want. That's not sustainable and can't be allowed. And it's entirely possible we'll see some action on that once there's change in Congress and the White House. But we'll start with George. Thanks for joining us. This is actually your second visit to the podcast. And if you could tell us a little bit about what is parole, it's not criminal parole. So that's the first thing to make clear. How has it developed over the years? What's the problem with it? Well, Mark, Thank you so much for having me. As you said, I was on a podcast in August, and I'm very happy to be back now as part of the center. This June will mark the 70th anniversary of the enactment of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, which is still America's foundational immigration law. Congress tucked into what was called the McCarran-Walter Act, a provision that granted the attorney general the discretionary power to parole aliens into the United States. And what the language said was the attorney general may, in his discretion, parole into the U.S. temporarily under such conditions as he may prescribe 
for emergent reasons or, or for reasons deemed strictly in the public interest, any alien applying for admission to the U.S. Congress specifically stated that this power should be surrounded with strict limitations. In emergency cases, such as an alien who requires immediate medical attention or for the purposes of prosecution. But the things you just mentioned, medical attention, that wasn't actually written in the law. That's more like in the legislative history, right? Yeah, that was a committee report. That's what I'm saying. Back so in that, 1952. So that the part you read, the emergent conditions, what have you, is in the statute. But obviously, this is what Congress intended, is what you described. But the whole point is that's not the way it worked. And just before you go on, the reason it says attorney general is because back then the Immigration Service was part of the Justice Department. So now, essentially, what you replace attorney general with Homeland Security Secretary. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Go Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no problem. And the current version of the statute is a bit different. It's a reflection of Lamar Smith in Congress in 1996 and Alan Simpson trying to rein in abuse of the parole power. And it now says, this is the statute, only on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefits. So that's the current and again, that sort of significant public benefit is one of those things that presidents basically use to mean whatever the heck they want it to mean. Exactly. Exactly. The scope of this power has been the subject of an ongoing battle between the executive branch and the legislative branch for over 65 years now, despite the clear intent of Congress, as widely recognized by federal courts, even the Ninth Circuit has recognized how narrow Congress intended parole to be. Successive administrations have used the power to create, as you said, Mark, pretty much whatever immigration policy they saw fit, regardless of whether it fit within the statutory framework set by Congress. And as you also said, this has been both Democrat and Republican presidents have used the power to circumvent congressionally established immigration policy to bring in literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of aliens over the years into the U.S., Each succeeding administration, in my view, has used the parole power to achieve an illegitimate power grab of various levels of audacity. It all started actually back in 1956 when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary and President Eisenhower decided to interpret very broadly this new parole power to permit Hungarians to enter en masse as refugees. Of course, a hugely sympathetic group in a crisis situation. But that decision of President Eisenhower has led directly, directly undergirds President Biden's current attempt to allow for the mass entry of Central Americans who do not qualify as refugees into the U.S. through the Central American Miners Parole Program. This is the progression, the path that was started in 56. And if Congress or the courts don't intervene I believe that increasingly emboldened administration officials will do their best to use parole basically to cook an immigration policy feast that's unpalatable to Congress and the American people. The question, of course, it will depend on whether Congress actually finds it unpalatable enough to actually do anything about it. Exactly. And it's not just through that CAM program, which is relatively small. It started under Obama. A lot of people who are just coming across the border illegally are being paroled into the United States, too. I'm pretty sure they used parole for a lot of the Cubans when Castro took over as well. So, uh, I mean, it has been used very broadly. You're right. And I've actually seen activists on the outside basically say, look, 
presidents can do anything they want. They can let in any foreigner they want, regardless of the statute, whether they qualify or not. And I think at some point, Congress has to draw a line and say, this is not allowed. So before Jessica tells us a little bit about the work permit part of it, have there been proposals to try to rein this in more? I mean, the language you read was kind of already an attempt at tightening from the original 1952 language. Have there been attempts to even tighten it further? Multiple times Congress has attempted to. In fact, our very refugee system, which Congress created in 1980, was specifically designed to prevent the abuse of the parole power by presidents to create an ad hoc refugee system through the use of the parole power. That's why Congress in 1980 created the refugee system. It hasn't worked, but that was Congress's intent to create the structured refugee program to prevent the abuse of parole. In 1996, where our current parole language came from, the House of Representatives actually passed language proposed by Lamar Smith which would have specifically delineated, not in a committee report, but in the statute, what parole could be used for. Right. Coming into the U.S. to donate an organ to a relative, to visit a dying relative, to come here to, to be a witness for a prosecution, to be prosecuted yourself, to come here after you've helped the U.S. government and your life is now in danger because of that overseas. And so, in other words, to literally spell out those kind of instances where the president could let somebody in who didn't have any right to come in. Exactly. And the House passed it in 96. And should the courts not on their own rein in abuse of parole, I would certainly suggest Congress look at enacting what the House passed uh, in 1996, which would pretty much make it impossible for the administrations to do what they've been doing with parole. So that didn't end up in the – because 1996, both houses of Congress passed and the president signed a big immigration bill. That part of it didn't end up in the final version? The House and Senate went to conference mm -hmm. and the result was the current language. They did add case by case. They did add urgent humanitarian reason. But they didn't have those list of particular instances. Why did they take those out? They thought it was too restrictive? I believe that was – that was the reason. I mean, the Senate was clear. The Senate also thought parole was being abused in an illegitimate fashion, right. but they weren't willing to go as far in terms of the remedy. Yeah, incredible. One more question on this. Who can sue? In other words, you said if the courts don't stop it, well, have there been attempts, lawsuits to attempt to stop it? And who has standing? Well, interesting that you asked. Just a few weeks ago, a coalition of states led by the Texas Attorney General have sued the Biden administration over the CAM program, claiming it's illegal, illegitimate, not authorized by statute. And the significance of this lawsuit is— And specifically on the basis of parole, because yeah. CAM has other aspects to it. I mean, it's also like a refugee program. Yeah, is, they're not right. challenging the refugee aspect of the CAM program. They're challenging the abuse of parole okay. specifically. And the importance of the lawsuit is that while the Trump administration, to its credit, did try to rein in parole abuses, it never argued in court that the parole abuses were illegitimate. They just argued bad policy. But the Texas and the other states are actually arguing it's inconsistent with the statute, it's illegal, 
And before a sympathetic Fifth Circuit in Texas, Mm -hmm. which is already in another lawsuit, said what the Biden administration is doing with parole, just letting people apprehended at the border border. out on parole, is totally inconsistent with the statute. If the court applies that analysis in this case, it could dramatically scale back the ability of presidents to abuse the parole power. So the other part of this issue, because once somebody's let in on parole, then what do they do? I mean, if you're here to, as George said, visit a dying relative or donate an organ or something, you don't need a work permit. You're not here very long. You really are here temporarily. But if a president wants to concoct a parallel immigration system, the people coming in that he's letting in through this abuse of this parole power need to be able to work too in order to support themselves. And that's the work permit part where the use, the issuance of work permits, they're now called employment authorization documents or EADs in the jargon, is the other part of it. And so Jessica is going to tell us a little bit about how that's happened and how much of that is going on. Jessica? Thanks, Mark. And I just wanted to mention one aspect of this first. As George pointed out, the parole authority has been used or abused in a lot of different ways over history. And I think that there's kind of a spectrum of audacity in how it's been used. It's particularly good name for a band, Spectrum of Audacity. <laughs> Go ahead. In its categorical forms. And I don't think it's particularly controversial to let people in to donate a kidney to a relative or to be prosecuted or to assist in a prosecution. But it's this categorical use of parole that is so problematic. In other words, for whole categories of people. Right. In other words, right. And it's been used, for example, to allow the family members of World War II veterans from the Philippines in, you know, which is, I'd say, low on the audacity spectrum because it's a low number of people and a high level of sort of sympathy factor with those cases. It's also been used to allow Cubans and Haitians to bypass the waiting lists for immigration visas or to adjust as refugees. And that's a little more problematic because we've got a lot higher numbers, but the parole in their cases has been very temporary and there is a path to a green card for those people. But what is especially audacious about the Biden administration's abuse of parole is that now they're doing it for illegal border crossers as basically an alternative way of processing them to avoid removing them quickly or putting them in detention. And we're talking now very high numbers of people who have no path to a green card. And so I I think that's very, very problematic. And, And this is really what we've been talking about of creating an alternative path of immigration outside of congressional intent. How many are we talking about? Well, this is another problem because there is almost no transparency about use of parole. The numbers of people being allowed to enter with parole has not been in the Department of Homeland Security's immigration statistics yearbook since 2003. Hmm. So we really don't know. And, and I've tried. So they do know. They just haven't reported it for 20 years. They have not reported it. I, I believe that they do know. They have to know because they're right. processing people. But another problem is that there are three immigration agencies involved in paroling people. You have Customs and Border Protection at the border. You have ICE. And you have USCIS issuing work permits. So I've been trying to delve into these numbers recently. And it's very difficult to come up with a number. You know, even the Congressional Research Service has not been able to identify a number when they reported on parole recently in 2020. According to CBP, 
in fiscal year 21 last year, there were 47,000 grants of parole. And according to their latest numbers available, which is the first quarter of current fiscal year, 34,000. So the numbers have gone up enormously. Really? 34,000? In the first quarter, which was basically October, November, and December of 21. Okay. And that's about four times as high as the previous year because they've been shifting that the Biden administration originally was just allowing a lot of people to enter with a notice to report, right? like a summons. And that's an even bigger number. That's hundreds of thousands. I see. Okay. That's like 300 some thousand. And then in March of last year, they shifted to using what they're calling parole plus ATD, but they weren't identified separately in their statistics Hmm. until the first quarter of the current fiscal year. And that's when they're reporting that it was 34,000 people given parole. But see, ICE has this authority also. And what ICE is reporting, we've learned because a member of Congress, Mo Brooks from Alabama, requested this information from ICE. And we learn from those statistics that there have been about 202,000 people just in the nine months of March to December 2021. Who were allowed in with some form of either parole or this summons, and 30% of them never did report to the local ICE office, but that's a large number. And then when we turn to USCIS, is the agency that actually issues work permits to parolees. So when you get parole, you can apply for a you work have permit. The, you may apply for right. a work permit. And so in FY21, They handed out 33,000 work permits to parolees, which was double the year before, but likely will at least double or more than double for the current fiscal year because of the fact that more people are actually being allowed to have parole. This is problematic because of the issue of the, you know, whose authority it is to decide who gets to work here. But it's also important to understand that this work permit that the executive branch has the authority to issue to parolees, they're supposed to show a need to work, but, you know, that can be defined very easily, very liberally. But this is why this is so valuable to the illegal border crossers that they're being allowed in because they can get a work permit. The work permit is an employment authorization document. It also means that you are issued a social security number, which apparently is yours for life whether you still have parole or not, in most states of the country, having a legal work permit means that you qualify for a driver's license as well. And all the benefits and services that a legal non-citizen would have access to in almost every state in the union. So basically, this is kind of green card light. It is being allowed to live and work here as if you were here legally, despite the fact that you have, in the case of these illegal border crossers, no path to a green card without an act of Congress or an amnesty of some kind. And you're also under, at least under the Biden administration, not going to be a priority for enforcement. So even though the law says that when your parole expires, if you have not been in compliance with the terms, you must be removed or returned, I think is the language in the law. George can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But you're basically here legally under color of law 
without having actually qualified for any kind of legal status under the law that Congress has created. And also, thanks to Representative Brooks, we know where these individuals are settling. He obtained some information from ICE about where the 70% of them that actually checked in, where they did so. And so now we know that about a quarter of the people being paroled have settled in Texas and Florida, large numbers also in New York and California, and also in the Chicago field office, which is the largest in the country and covers about six big states in the Midwest. But interestingly, also, the next highest place of settlement is they've checked in in the New Orleans ICE field office, Hmm. which covers Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it. it, uh, it's not just the big cities that you would expect anyway, where a lot of immigrants are. No, not at all. Now, a question about work permits is that there's obviously an overlap between people who get paroled and people who get work permits, but the executive also gives work permits to lots of other illegal aliens who don't have parole. In other words, there are legal workers and what have you who get work permits legitimately, but don't presidents also give work permits to various other categories of illegal immigrants who, who are not paroled in but are here for something in some other capacity? Yeah, the USCIS issues more than a million work permits each year to people who are not otherwise authorized to work because of their status. In other words, if you come in on a temporary work visa, you don't need a work permit because right. your visa- Or if you have a green card, obviously. Right, or if you have a green card- That is kind of your work permit, as right. it were. Yeah, okay. And there are certain categories where they are required by law to give out work permits according to status. But they also, there are a lot of work permits that go to spouses of people who are here as guest workers, or there's the whole DACA program. Right. That was all about the work permits, really, is why that was created. People with temporary protected status have work permits. It's a very large number of people, as I said, a million a year getting permission to work here, even though they're not eligible in many cases. Some of them are. Some of them are like pre-immigrants, I call them. They're going to get a green card. They're living here legally. They've applied for adjustment to a green card. They're on a waiting list. But many of them are like parolees or people who are in proceeding. They're asylum applicants and other categories of people who entered illegally but have been allowed to launder their status, in effect, with the work permit. And again, they get that Social Security number that's theirs for the rest of their time here, whether they comply with their immigration proceedings or whether their parole expires, because parole is supposed to expire. It's a temporary thing. But we know historically there's nothing as permanent as a temporary immigration status. And that also gives them access to Social Security benefits when they retire. Yes, because they've been working here. They'll get their 40 qualifying quarters. They can even go back to their home country and collect Social Security, which sometimes they do. Yeah, and that's actually something Social Security has pointed out is that when they give a number to somebody, let's say they're here in some kind of legal status. If that status lapses, the social security number doesn't lapse. So they can, I mean, their employer is like, well, I don't know. He's got a social security number. What do I know? You know I mean? So you end up a lot of times illegal workers that even the employer may not realize they're illegal and they're continuing to make social security contributions. So it's one of these areas where, you know, are they really illegal or are they not or what? And once they have their driver's license, right, yeah, of course. they can really hide in plain because sight. Because that is our national ID card. Yes. It's just that we have the states do it. So there's... 50 separate national, well, D.C. and the rest of it, national ID issuing bodies rather than just one like Mm -hmm. there would be in a European country. And this is why it's such a legitimate issue for the states, 
and that why that lawsuit I think is very important because there are tangible costs to the states for these extra legal programs like parole. For example, the state of Florida, where a lot of them are going, we recently calculated is spending $2 billion a year on medical services, health care, and especially public schools for illegal aliens. Texas identified more than $850 million a year for the same types of expenses and also incarceration costs. And in fact, that was the basis for they're getting standing, right? It was when Texas started the lawsuit against DACA this many years ago. The reason they were even able to present the lawsuit was because of the costs that this federal government policy was imposing on the state. Right. It's a giant unfunded mandate. Right, right. So, George, have there been efforts in Congress to deal with the work permit issue as well to kind of rein that in? That's a really interesting question. When Congress in 1986, as part of the big 86 amnesty, created the I-9 program and said employers have to check the documents of new workers. Because before that, it was legal to hire illegal aliens. So you didn't need to have a work permit. It was, I mean, you could be, you were an illegal alien, but the employer was off the hook. He could hire anybody he wanted. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And one of the things Congress did in that bill was add a a line into the law basically saying, well, I guess we now have to define who's authorized to work and who isn't because we're putting this requirement on employers. The way they defined it, there's language saying then the attorney general, now Department of Homeland Security, can decide who to authorize to work. Now, whether Congress actually meant by that that the administration can decide whoever in the world they want to allow to work, they can work for whatever and and no reason whatsoever. I doubt it, but that's how administrations have viewed it through the regulatory process. They can allow to work whoever they feel like allowing to work. So, I mean, it seems like that would be on the agenda of a future Congress to maybe start trying to delimit that and rein it in. That would be a very good idea. Right. You'd think that they would want to protect their turf. I mean, this is one of the areas of our laws that Congress has explicit authority over. Right, right. And the analogy that immediately comes to mind to me is war powers, because Congress has progressively over the past, really since World War II, ceded its authority to declare war. And there have been rumblings of trying to take that back. But even there, that actually is explicitly foreign policy, and the president does have the broadest authority to act on his own in foreign policy matters, whereas this is not foreign policy. I mean, this is the actual admission of people who will become part of the population here. And so it seems like this is something that really Congress should not be ceding its authority over. The Supreme Court has been very clear. There's basically no other aspect of the federal government where Congress has pretty much complete authority over immigration policy. Plenary power. Plenary power over immigration policy. If Congress chooses to fritter it away and look the other way when it's abused, that's another issue. Right. But under the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court, it's Congress. And the way the immigration law is structured, I mean, it's not like it says this in, you know, any kind of preface or preamble, but when you look at it, the immigration law gives the president very wide authority, total authority to keep out anyone he wants, but very limited, structured, narrowed authority on letting people in. And so what we've actually seen when you think about both the use of parole 
of work permits, and then also the lawsuits against the Trump administration when they issued the travel bans, is an attempt to completely invert that and to essentially give the president total authority, complete authority to let literally anyone he wants to in the world into the United States, whether Congress likes it or not, but to very narrowly limit his authority to keep anybody out. It's sort of a conceptual inversion of what immigration law is supposed to be about. And I think that needs to be on the agenda of any future Congress or president to sort of restore the proper order there so that we have an immigration policy that's consistent with what it's supposed to be. I think that is exactly right. And there's also another inversion, which is the parole statute talks in terms of admitting people to the U.S. You would normally think it means the power to let someone who is not in the United States to enter the United right. States. But under the doctrine of parole in place, administrations now believe they have the power to parole someone. Retroactively. Who, yeah, who entered the U.S. illegally, who's already here. We're now going to parole you, allow you to be admitted, even though you're already here. That's now used in a number of instances, including the illegal alien family members of certain military service members and veterans. And DACA people can apply for that, too, so that they can return. Is that that's correct? Advance parole, yes. Advance parole, yeah, okay. Advanced that is parole. another— Oh, I see. So that's, mm-hmm. that's not retroactive parole, which is what parole in place is. That's, that's paroling you before you even get— But it, it gives here. you a legal admission, right. which under other parts of the law has implications for whether or not you can actually get a green card. It basically launders you. I mean, it's basically a yes. kind of unilateral amnesty power. And— this concept of parole in place is not something that's in the law. I mean, this was made up by executive branch, right? Until, Until a couple of years yeah. ago. It's an interesting legal question because in 1996, when Congress changed the law so that if you enter the U.S. illegally without checking in at a port of entry, you are considered still an applicant for admission, even though you came here illegally. You're here, but you're not formally admitted yet. When Congress in 1996 changed that definition of admission, they neglected to change the use of the term admission in the parole statute, which has allowed administrations to use Ah, this argument. So the language of the parole statute should also be cleaned up in that aspect. So we've got a whole sort of to-do list where when there's another big immigration push. Interesting. Well, I think it's time for Congress to start thinking about that because things change on the Hill. And those who are concerned about the abuse of parole maybe want to get ready and start thinking about their options. Because, yeah, you know, I think we're getting really to the outrage side of the spectrum on audacity. Right, right. Yeah. Although, I mean, I got to say, giving administrations a pass on, for instance, these pre-immigrants, you know, somebody who's on a waiting list but you're going to let them in anyway, that's a camel's nose under the tent. I mean, that can't be allowed either. There's a reason there are numerical caps, and those caps are what they are. There are 4 million people on those waiting lists. Right. Not all of them here yet, but yes, I mean, theoretically, an administration could say, we're going to let all those 4 million people waiting outside the U.S. come in right now under parole. Sure, yeah. I mean, well, I think they're that not was all, proposed some of them are by already, the current Congress, wasn't it, or something similar oh, to yeah, that? Oh, yeah, the, the, in that big U, the Democrats uh, HR1 bill. or whatever, yeah. the administration's amnesty bill. Okay, well, we will keep up with this, but I think this is one of these fundamental issues about immigration and immigration law 
In other words, who decides? Does the executive have the right to do whatever the heck he wants? That need to undergird all of the sort of more specific discussions. And this is the kind of thing that can't be ignored while we're talking about, you know, should we plug the holes in the wall or what have you, all of which, all of those are important issues, but we need to get straight to begin with who has the right to decide this? And is this kind of executive freelancing and immigration policy something that should be allowed or do we need to put a stop to it? So thank you. George's report will be, we'll have a link in the show notes and we'll have some other links in there for if you want to learn more about this. And thank you, George. And thanks, Jessica. Thank Thank you you so much, Mark. Finally, I wanted to talk about something that's in the news. Obviously, everybody's seen the news about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there's obviously an immigration angle to it. A lot of people are fleeing Ukraine. Civilians are trying to get out to the West to get away from the fighting. And the New York Times had a story, I think it was over the weekend. It presented itself as a news story, but it was really more an op-ed, which is par for the course for the New York Times, arguing that Poland and Hungary are all racists because they didn't want Afghans and Syrians pouring into their countries, but they are taking Ukrainians. And the idea was, well, you know, they're white and they're Christian, so that, you know, the Poles and Hungarians are all bigots. It's hard to express how dishonest that perspective is, because what they're doing is not selecting immigrants that they like and turning away those they don't like. They're taking people from next door. People are fleeing a war in the country that borders on Poland and Hungary and Romania, by the way. And so people are going to the first place that they can get to out of their own country. This is what actual refugees do. This is why Kenya is where so many Somali refugees are. It's next door. This is why Afghans are in large numbers in Pakistan and Iran. This is why there are so many Venezuelans in Colombia, so many Syrians in Turkey, and, by the way, so many Cubans from the initial batch of Cubans fleeing the communist takeover in the United States because it's next door. And in fact, more than 100 years ago, the United States took large numbers, relatively large numbers for the time, of Mexicans fleeing the Mexican Revolution because the country was in chaos for, I don't remember exactly, something like 10 years, maybe more. In fact, a huge portion of the Mexican-American population are, in fact, the great-grandchildren of people who fled the Mexican Revolution. We took those people in because the country next door to ours was in chaos. What the Europeans experienced in their migrant crisis in 2015 And frankly, what we're seeing on our border for the past number of years are people who are passing through multiple countries, country after country after country, before they get to European countries or to the United States because they're not actually refugees anymore. Somalis in Kenya are refugees, and it's perfectly appropriate for wealthy, developed countries like ours, I think it's in our interest, in fact, to help Kenya, for instance, whether we do it through the UN or other ways to accommodate 
those refugees and eventually help them return home if possible. It is a completely different situation when the same Somalis who were in Kenya decide they would actually prefer to live in Germany or live in Minneapolis. They're not refugees anymore. And the fundamental difference between people using refugee claims, asylum claims, we would call them under our law, as a pretext for economic migration, on the one hand, and people who actually are refugees because they can't stay where they are anymore, is fundamental. And it's the kind of thing that the New York Times and others simply refuse to acknowledge and accept. Helping people next door to your own country get out of immediate danger and providing for them in some way until that danger passes is one thing. That is a legitimate and real concern. Migrants using claims of persecution as a gambit to effectively migrate to wealthier countries is not legitimate. And that's the real challenge of asylum law going forward. Our asylum rules were created in the immediate aftermath of World War II as the Cold War started. And it was a situation very much like we're seeing now, people fleeing Eastern Europe. Actually, they were fleeing Russian persecution. Uh, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And going to immediate countries next door. That model for asylum isn't what we see in most of the world most of the time. What we're seeing in Ukraine on the border of Poland and Hungary and Romania is the exception. And we need to reform and really rewrite from scratch our whole asylum and refugee laws, both in the United States and broadly international agreements and what have you, so that they reflect the ability to respond to situations like we're seeing in Ukraine without the rationale for those kind of arrangements being used as a pretext for mass migration from thousands of miles away. That's it for this week's Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian. If you listen to this podcast on any of the podcast platforms that allow you to rate or review, please give us a rating or a review. Otherwise, feel free to just email us if you have any thoughts, criticisms, you know, critiques, questions, anything. You can email me directly at msk at cis.org. Thank you.